Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. guys some scripture this morning. Um, This comes from Matthew 2, um, and I'm starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod Magi, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, They returned to their country by another route. Thanks, Lauren, for reading our scripture for today. So we are are starting a uh, new series through the, the kind of the beginning of December into Christmas on Advent. And so Advent kind of broken down different things. And so this week we're talking about hope. And the title of the message is The Threat of Hope. Now, 
It's going to be a little bit different than kind of my normal style style of preaching. I hope you guys are prepared for a little bit of a history lesson. Now, growing up, when I heard history lesson, I immediately zoned out and failed the class. Now, almost failed, but passed so that I wouldn't get in too much trouble. I hated history. Hated history. Then I found out that the reason I hated history was because I had a lack of good history teachers, right? And I, I got to college where I had the... D. Bob Black, right? And if you if you know, you probably don't, but he is the professor to get history from, right? And so he's at Southern Wesleyan University, retired now, but he has like two or three books that you can go and read. And man, history came alive when he began to teach it. So here's the deal. I'm more like my high school teacher than my college teacher. So you guys are going to have to work hard to pay attention today. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, this is a, this is a, a fascinating. Uh, we're kind of gonna give you some context for this passage that we just read that I think really makes it come alive. That here's the thing with Christmas. I absolutely love it. Like you guys know, I'm the maniac that starts like almost before Halloween, definitely November 1st, listening to Christmas music, right? I just love all that the season brings, all that it means. Like it's just, to me, it's, it's foundational. It's, it's our savior coming into the world and it's just so powerful. And I love Christmas so much, but here's the deal. The truth is for a lot of us, Christmas is kind of the time of year where we kind of pull down the the backdrop, right? Like anybody have those like Owen Mills pictures taken of them when they were little, right? You go to the studio and you can say, well, you know, we have this gray stone-like background or we've got this marble background. Or if you want to be in front of a beach, we've got the sand and the ocean or the mountains and and you can pick your background, right? It's this backdrop that we pull down. And for a lot of us, Christmas is kind of like that. It's, you know what? Life is miserable. I'm sad. I'm anxious. I'm stressed out, but it's Christmas, so I need to be happy. And so we pull down this backdrop of Christmas, and and we make it through December, maybe the beginning of January, and then we can put that backdrop up and we get back to being real, right? And so what I want to kind of do with this message and this series is I want us to, Christmas season, not just to be the backdrop that we pull down, but I want us to feel the weight of Jesus entering history, the weight of the Christmas story. It's not just fun songs about the weather, but the the worship songs that we hear and we sing about bringing God glory, that we come and we bow before him, the, the way of Christmas. And that's kind of the goal of this ma- of this message in this series. And, and so Lauren read Matthew 2, where we read about King Herod and and he hears all the kind of the hype and the buzz about Jesus, this new king. And, and kind of what I want to do is unpack the power of Jesus's kingdom by looking at King Herod and kind of putting this all into context for just so you know that there's a lot of sources for this because there's a lot of history. Uh, one of the, the main books that most of this comes from is called Herod the Great. Uh, I listened to several different podcasts, but there's a, a lot of sources that kind of went into this message. But the story starts with Caesar Augustus, right? Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor to be called a god while still alive. He was pretty much a genius. He was a a great leader. He did so many good things for Rome. He's uh, credited with the Pax Romana, which is the golden age of Rome, right? That's when Rome was ruling all. There was peace for Rome. Rome Rome was the ruler, right? And so he he was called things like the son of God. Sound familiar? Called things like the savior of the world. Uh, bringer of peace, 
Sound familiar? He used a thing called shock doctrine, which is a real thing still used by politicians today. But it's basically like when there's a, something, a crisis in the culture, it's when you use that crisis, that time of fear to kind of push some of the things through that you want to be pushed through. And so there was this time where a comet appeared over Rome and everybody saw it and everybody had no idea what a comet was. And they start kind of losing their mind and getting scared and anxious, don't know what's going on. And so Caesar Augustus steps up and says, you know what that is? That's my father, Julius Caesar. Yes, that Julius Caesar at Tubrute. You know the story, right? That Julius Caesar, he has died. And that is him going into heaven, becoming a God, which makes me a son of God. So now we have Caesar Augustus, self-appointed son of God, right? Rome is so lucky to have him as their leader. They have a living God as their leader, right? And, and Augustus, he, he pushes, pushes this through. And the way kind of Rome became so powerful and the way they ruled the world was they would conquer different cities. They would conquer different nations. They would conquer these people and then they would take over them. And if the people were cooperative and they followed the rules, did what they were supposed to, never kind of raised any cane, they were just good people, they could kind of, do their own thing, and there wasn't, they didn't, Rome didn't worry about them a whole lot. But if they were troublesome, what Rome would do is they say, You need to conform to us. So they'd find somebody in that group of people who was willing to be loyal to the Caesar, and they would say, Hey, you are now going to rule those people. They would appoint one of them to rule over them for Caesar Augustus. So that takes us to where we are in our story now where there is, it's 63 BC, Pompey has laid siege to Jerusalem, and it turns out that Jerusalem is this place full of a bunch of troublemakers, right? They're the latter group. That They have these old ancient documents that say that there's going to be a prophetic word, that there's going to be a king like David that's going to raise up, and, the, and that they're, they're, these Jews, these people here are going to be the one, they're going to be the new Rome. They're going to be the one that rule the nations. They're going to be the, the head and not the tail. They have these old texts that they follow, and they say, you know what? We're not going to be oppressed by any empire. And so they cause all kinds of trouble. They don't want to follow Rome. They don't want to do what Rome has for them. They don't want to worship this self-appointed living God. Right? They, they don't want to have any part of that. So Rome has to do something. We've got to take care of these troublemakers. They are annoying. They won't listen to us. And so they appoint uh, Herod the Great's dad, high priest, to kind of be over all of the Jews. And then he, in turn, makes Herod the Great the king of the Jews. So Herod's dad is high priest. Herod the Great becomes king of the Jews, right? Well, turns out they weren't really happy about that. I mean, surprise, right? They're not happy about that. So they have the Sanhedrin, which we've talked about and heard about, read about in Scripture, right? This, this group of religious leaders, they come together, and they basically try Herod the Great. And they say, you know what? The way he got his power, it was because his dad, and there was some political maneuvering, and, and they, they just said, you know what? We really don't like this guy. He's not even full Jewish. He's half Jewish and half idiomite. Like, he's not even, he's not even one of us. He's a, a half-blood. He's, he's mixed. And you know what? He got to be the king by some manipulating and corruption. We're not going to follow him. And they basically take this ruling, this decree to Herod the Great, and they say, hey, you know what? we're not going to follow your authority. Surprise. He didn't like that. So he starts trying to figure out, how am I going to control these troublemakers? What am I going to do? He goes back to Rome and strikes up a deal. You see, 
the way that Herod became Herod the Great is he is a fantastic leader, right? He can get stuff done. He's, a, he, he's brilliant. He's a great builder. He, uh, let's see what all he can do. He, so he has um, leadership skills. He's an architect. He's an engineer. He's violent and aggressive. He's a skillful warrior. He's an amazing build, builder and a brilliant leader. And so he goes to Rome and he says, I've got all of these skills and I will build cities and nations to follow you. But I need your authority to go back. And so Rome's like, well, okay. I mean, I like power. I like authority. I like people to obey me. I grant you this authority, right? And so now Herod goes back to Jerusalem. He goes back with this new authority given to him by Rome, and he goes back with a vengeance. He is angry, and he's going specifically to the Sanhedrin. There's 75 of them, and he wants to destroy all of them. 37 BC, he returns to the city. He returns with 11,000 battalions of infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and he besieges the city. And he's going there. He says, you are going to give me authority or I'm going to take it. And he seeks out every single one of those men. And as he does this, an all-out massacre ensues. Women are raped and murdered in the streets. Children are slaughtered. People are running from their homes and the streets are so narrow that they can't escape and they get trapped in the streets. And these Herod soldiers just come through killing every single one of them, destroying everything everybody in their path. Really great guy, right? He gets to a place where he actually kills 45 of the 75 men and all the other ones run out into the caves. So Herod, with his skillful set that we've talked about, chases after them because there will be no one to oppose him. He chases after them. He comes up with this whole new sophisticated ladder system with the pulleys and things like that. And he actually smokes these guys out of the caves And as he smokes them out, they run to exit. And he's built these other machines that have these giant hooks on them that literally grab them and throw them off the cliff to their death. Herod would not be opposed. Everybody will follow him and do what he says. Herod the Great was going to be great whether people would let him or not. And can I just say, that's a pretty strong name, right? Like, hey, Herod. No, it's Herod the Great. He's the original person to make things great again. You see what I did there? You see what I did there? Okay, okay, that was a bad joke, but I had to make it, right? So, but, but seriously, he, he's made his name great. He's taken authority. He's taken over power, and he's done it violently and aggressively. And you can imagine the Jewish people absolutely hate him. They demise him. And he's got all of this power. And the problem with this is his power comes from Rome. And if we go back and we remember, Caesar Augustus says, I'm a God. And since I'm a God, I require worship. But Herod is a Jew. Even though he's half Jewish, he's still Jewish. And his people are Jewish. And they have this whole list of like 10 commandments. You might've heard of them. And like the first commandment says they can't worship anybody but God. So there's this tension. There's this problem. Herod, who is king of these Jews, he's supposed to be ruling over them. Jewish himself is now being required to worship Caesar Augustus. So what is he going to do? What is Herod going to do? Well, he does what any great leader who wants nothing but power does. He builds temple after temple and statue after statue to the great name of Caesar Augustus. 
he literally pollutes this city of worship with idolatry. Everywhere you look, he, he is completely corrupt. He cares about nothing but his own name and his own power. And the Jews hated him even more. What about his family? His family, Herod had 11 wives and 43 kids. That said, I wouldn't necessarily call him a family man, right? He actually had one wife, and I'm not going to pronounce her name because I can't, but he has one wife that he is genuinely in love with. All of his writings, all of his history books, they go back and they said that it genuinely seems like he loves this woman. But he has 10 other wives and lots of other kids. And so he begins to kind of grow suspicious that she actually loves her children more than she loves him. And there's one day he's like going, he's about to leave to go on a trip. And he says, hey, tells one of his right-hand men, hey, uh, I'm going on this trip. If I don't come back, it's because she has done something to kill me. Because she wants her sons to have my authority. Just wants you to know, right? So he goes on this trip and he makes it back safely. But he is furious at all of the stress and the anxiety and the worry he felt the whole time he was gone. And he's back and he's having an interaction with his wife. And then she actually like looks at him funny and he has her executed on the spot because he does not like the stress that she has put him under. And she still has these kids, right? And a couple of them are sons and they could actually take over his throne. So he brings the sons before him. These are his kids, his sons. And he says, I need you to debate which one of you are greater. He makes them fight each other and say, which one of you are greater? And then once they get to a place where they can't debate each other, he makes them convince him, like, make your case for your life. And so they're before this king trying to convince him that their life is worth keeping and letting them live. And at the end of all of it said and done, he kills both of them anyway. Great dad, great husband, right? Herod had all this family, all these people, but he was a terrible, terrible man. At one point, at one point, he was so evil and so hated that he was worried people would actually cheer in the streets that he di- when he died, that he called together a group of some of the uh, most well-liked religious leaders. He called them in, he, he took them in, he said, these guys, when I die, I want them executed as well, so that at least there will be mourning in the streets and not cheering, and they'll mourn for something, even if it's not me. Herod the Great, right? But all this, he, we've, we've established he wasn't a great guy. But even though he wasn't a great guy, he was still great by these Rome standards, right? He had all kinds of money. He's considered one of the richest people to ever live. At one point, they thought that he had 500,000 people on his payroll. That's the amount of people that he paid. How much more money do you think he had? He was a visionary and he loved to build and he wanted people to know he was great. There's, there's a complex going on here, right? Uh, you guys know there's a story where David is running from Solomon, right? And he runs into these caves and these caves are in a uh, place called Masada, right? And so he's there and he's in this, he, David's hiding in these caves and David is the great king, right? The, the Jews are talking about one day we'll have a king like David, right? The, so the, the, he's the example. And so Herod says, I want people to know that I'm greater than David. So what did David do in Masada? He hid. What am I going to do? I'm going to build a multi-layered palace in these caves. This land that was impossible to build on, he builds a three-story castle to live in. It had cold and hot tubs. There was a a pool on a roof where it hadn't rained in years. 
he would, he would, inside of this city, he would preserve food so that the people could live for years if they were to be taken over or couldn't escape. And at one point in 1960, so this is like almost 2,000 years later, some archaeologists are digging in this area and they actually break into a secret compartment and they find some of this preserved food. They take the labels off of them and eat them. 2,000 years later and they eat it. Six of them died, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> None of them, they all lived. They all ate. That's how, how much of a genius this guy was, that he could preserve food for millennials, right? For, for decades, for years. And so he was a genius. And so he had this massive thing that was built on these caves where it was unbuildable. I am greater than King David. That's what he wanted to, the message he wanted to give. There's another place where uh, Solomon was known for building the temple, right? He's known for building this great temple to God. And Herod, again, wanted people to know, I'm greater than Solomon. So he builds this, he starts an expansion project on this temple where they have these Herodian stones that are 10 feet by 10 feet and they're thousands of pounds. And they're actually laid three stories into the ground. And this is just the foundation for the temple he's gonna build. Right, and it's so. What's what's crazy about this is it was actually considered sacred ground, so they couldn't use the chisels on the location. They had to go to a quarry that was nearby and cut these stones, and then carry them back and lay them down. And when they laid them down, they literally fit perfectly. He was a genius architect, a great builder, a great engineer. And these stones, even today's age, are struggled hydraulic struggle to move them. And he's doing this 2,000 years ago. You can see really how great and powerful he is. And he wanted people to know that I am better than Solomon. He also wanted to suck up to the Roman powers, right? He wanted people, he wanted Caesar Augustus, he wanted Rome to know, hey, I'm going to hold up that, you've given me this power. I want to show you that I'm going to hold up my end of this deal. And so he actually created a town named, wait for it, Caesarea. Man, he's creative, right? <laughs> right? But no, he creates this town, Caesarea. And what it is, is, is he knows that if he's going to gain power for Rome, he needs to control trade. And the way you do that is you, by controlling the shipping. And so he's, Caesarea is actually in this place. It's a marshland. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you can't build on marsh. The foundation doesn't work. There's not going to be a coastline for the ships to come in. And so he literally drains the marsh. I feel like I've heard that as a political statement too somewhere. I don't know. He drains the, <laughs> drains the swamp, drains the marsh, right? <laughs> he drains it and he lays concrete. And, and up to this point, the, the largest coastline port was 60 acres. And, and he's great. So it's got to be bigger than 60 acres. So he builds one that is a merely 520 acres. Huge port. Everything he does is to a massive scale. He pours this concrete. He lays the coast down. He forms it so that he can have this huge port and control all of this trade. There's an underground sewage system that drains out with the tide. There's uh, the closest fresh water is in the mountains, 19 miles away. So he builds these aqueducts that fall one centimeter for every meter that they travel for 19 miles. To this day, you can go to that site where they would fill uh, a pool, and it's, to this day, less than one centimeter off from the, where it was supposed to go. I mean, amazing feats of the mind and engineering and technology. Like, how did he do this? He, he actually hated salt water, but loved the ocean. 
So you can go and you can find pictures of like a palace that he built and builds in the middle of the ocean, but he didn't want to get in the salt water. So he puts a pool on top of fresh water. How does he do it? Who knows? I mean, it's amazing feats. And he does this because he's great he, and he's amazing and he wants everybody to know. He built, he built an amphitheater that could seat 350,000 people. At one point, he, he's traveling into this city. He's traveling into it and he says, this isn't mind-blowing enough. These are my, my paraphrase, right? This isn't great enough. And so he orders to have the whole thing covered in marble. He wants, he wants, when Caesar Augustus comes rolling into Caesarea, he wants Caesar to be like, man, this guy is a player. He knows the system. He's got money. He's got power. He knows what he's doing. But, you know, he wanted to look out for himself, too. So he built another city called the Herodian. Seen a theme with the names here. He's not real creative when it comes to the names, right? And this was a palace that he could escape to. And it had a pool. In the middle of this pool was a gazebo, a gazebo, right? And you, it was, the pool was so big and massive that you couldn't swim to the gazebo for getting tired. You actually had to boat to it. That's how big that he made this pool, right? At, at one point, he funded the Olympic Games. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the first Olympic Games brought to you by Herod the Great, right? Like he funded the Olympic Games. Like we still celebrate the Olympic Games. We watch them now, right? He funded that. He funded buildings. He, he had money to throw away. He controlled everything. He controlled the religious groups. He controlled the government. He controlled the economic system. He was known as an extraordinary man, Herod the Great accomplished all of this. But it came at a cost, right? Like this stuff wasn't free. So where did the money come from? Where did the resources come from? Where did the, the power come from? Because there was no farming. There was no farming in the city. So he had to bring in food from somewhere. And this is where we get into our scripture. And you think about all the parables that Jesus told about farming and tenants. And, and the truth was that Herod took the people of his that were outside the city, who were the, the agricultural people, and he turned this city, which was supposed to be a center for worship, into the center of power and corruption, and took control of these people, ruining their lives. You got to think about all the, all the people that are actually in the city the, that are now a part of the Sanhedrin, that are part of these religious groups. They're all corrupt. They don't care about making sure that people are following the law anymore. What they really care about is their own power and their own glory. And he has control over all of this. 80 to 90% of the people in Jesus' day worked in some kind of agricultural field. And they were the ones that were being taken advantage of. They were incredibly impoverished due to the taxes being levied against them. That's why we, we hear about all these parables that Jesus talks about. Herod took a 35% tax of grain and 50% tax of fish so that those that are inside the city can live at an elite level, at a high standard of living. You, as a fisherman, you would come into the port and there would be a tax collector there. And he would look at your fish and he would take 50%, the best 50% to give to Herod. He would take some for himself and then you were left with whatever he decided to leave you with, right? 
The people, they, had, they were taxed from every direction. There was a 12% tribute tax that they had to give to Rome. There was a transit tax, a market tax, a temple tax, a trade tax. There were special offerings and tithes required by Herod for different seasons or religious events. It said that the typical person in Jesus' time would end up giving 90% of their income to the government. Herod reduced the, his people to ruins so that he could have hot tubs and gazebos. That's the reign of Herod the Great. That's his story. And when Jesus enters the picture, he's at the height of his insanity. He's schizophrenic. He's angry. He has an STD that is corrosive and rotting him away. He has a portion of his intestines that are no longer working. And he is furious about everything. Now with that said, and that history, and that background, I'd like to go back and read our passage, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1, and I'm going to go through 18. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during that time, King Herod Magi from the east, King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? I thought Herod was the King of the Jews. Wait a minute. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Wait, I'm the king. Who are they going to worship? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. That used to, that used to, I was like, why would Jerusalem be disturbed that there's a new king? Like, aren't they expecting that? Aren't that exciting? But the reason Jerusalem is disturbed is because they're the city that's corrupt. They know that the new king means their power goes away. It says, when he had called together all the people's chief priests, teachers of the law, he asked them where, is the, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But to you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exactly the time the star had appeared. He sent to them, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for a child. For thee, child, as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Lies. <laughs> after, they heard the, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Picking up at verse 13, it says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Run for your life. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child, his mother, and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled that the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under. And according with this, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, 
weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Man, there's, do you get that weight? This crazy king known for bringing his people to ruins, for killing whatever could get in his way, has heard about another king, another king that's supposed to rise up a kingdom. And he does everything in his power, murdering innocent children, moms who can't be, can't be comforted because their kids are gone. That's King Herod. And you know, if we fast forward, that's the framing of Advent. That's Jesus coming into earth. I think a lot of times we get caught up in the, the hustle and bustle and the, the music and the lights and the decorations and the stores and all this everything. We, a lot of times we think, oh, well, you know, it was just some shepherds singing Kumbaya and then Jesus came and he just wanted everybody to be happy. And then there were some people who didn't want Jesus teaching everybody to be happy. So they killed him for trying to tell people to be happy. And, and, it, and there's this kind of twisted thing that we get caught up in believing. But the truth is that Jesus was a political refugee running for his life because a crazy king wanted him dead. That's the threat of hope. That's the threat of Christmas. That's what we come to celebrate. We don't understand the danger. We don't understand the threat, the power that Jesus entered the world. We don't understand what it meant that he was bringing a submersive kingdom into an empire to take it over, not politically, not with power, but with the kingdom of God. We have these two battling kingdoms that have come together. And let's be honest, if we were a betting people and we have these two people presented before us, where which kingdom would we put our money on? Will we bet if it's zero AD, are you betting on Jesus, the peasant, the refugee born to a, a teenage girl who grew up poor? He's suffocated to death hanging on a cross? Or are you putting your money on Herod the Great, the Masada, the Herodian, the Caesarea, the temple? all the power and money that he is, that we've talked about this morning. Are you putting your money on Jesus, who's this rough around the edges guy who is now dead? Or are you putting your money on Rome, the eternal city? It's easy to talk about now because we know how the story ends, but 99% of us would put our money on Rome, on what our eyes could see, and we would be wrong. Because here we are 2,000 years later in what used to be a room full of cubicles that we've turned into a church a church building so that we come together and we worship Jesus' name every week. That's what we sing about this morning, how beautiful the name of Jesus. And my guess is that, that this whole message was, was new information, that you didn't even know that the Herod the Great that we talked about this morning is different from the Herod that we see later at Jesus' trial. The truth is Herod has been lost to history and today 2 billion people on earth call Jesus their Lord and Savior. Where would you put your money? If you put it on what you can see, we'd be wrong. Yeah, if we look at America and the Christian, Christianity in America is dropping, but if you look at the rest of the world, you look at places like Cuba and China and Korea, there's acts like revival breaking out. To this day, people praising Jesus even though they're being put to death. And we don't even know who Herod the Great is. That's the backdrop of Christmas. That's the thread of hope. That when you look at your life, you look at your life and you think, what is winning? What is winning? Is it, is it the, the anger that's winning? Is it the cancer that's winning? Is it the stress and anxiety that's winning? And we, we see when we, what we can touch and what we see. and we, That's where we're putting our money and we feel defeated and we feel lost. And we feel like there's no hope. 
But at the end of the day, we know that Jesus' name is what's great, that Jesus prevails. He is the winner. He is victorious. That's our triumph. That's what gets our victory. That's what gets our praise. And this Christmas season, what we've come to celebrate, the threat of hope is that that stuff doesn't matter because Jesus is king. That's who we worship. He's who we praise. The, the, the threat of hope is, is what stirs our spirit. It raises our faith. It's what says whatever's going on around us, whatever seems great, isn't. It's what Jesus, it's Jesus that is great. That's where we put our money. That's Advent. Our struggle might seem like it's getting the best of us, but in the end, Jesus prevails. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's the name we sing. We look at this story and it seems like Herod the Great, who's manipulative, lying, dishonest. He's got a plan to be victorious. But in the end of the day, he is lost to history. It seems like your battle is winning, but I want to tell you today that you have hope and that hope will give you victory over that battle. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that that you didn't just set things into motion and leave us here to, to fend for ourselves, but you were active and you were involved. And Jesus, that you entered into our world. You put on skin. You faced, what it, faced the trials that we have faced. And we stand here today and we praise your name and we celebrate you and we sing about you and we hear about you and we study your word because you were victorious. And I pray that as we go through this Christmas season, no matter what comes up, no matter what tries to rob us of that eternal joy, that we'll know it has no teeth. It has no victory. But yours is the victory. You have won. I thank you for Christmas. I thank you, Jesus, that you entered the world and and ultimately that you did die on that cross, but that you rose again, that you defeated death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.